Hello everybody and welcome back to Spill Your Beans. Today we've got another episode of The Who Review, talking about Sunday's episode, Once Upon Time. Before we dive into my full breakdown of my thoughts on this episode, I thought I'd just mention a couple things. Of course, welcome to the podcast if this is your first time here, welcome. If it's not your first time here, thanks for coming back. Um, we do Doctor Who shows every Wednesday while the show is on the air, but we also do full in-depth film reviews with guests every Friday. Last week, uh, last Friday, the episode that's up now is a review of Ghostbusters and, men- well, obviously talking about the other Ghostbusters film as well, but mainly the original 1984 Ghostbusters. I was joined by Stephen McCullough, who you may know from Doctor Who uh, YouTube as Vote Saxon 07. So, if you're familiar with the Doctor Who community or you don't really know much about it, but you fancy joining in on a Ghostbusters review, and that is available on this podcast now. It's literally the last episode that was uploaded. And this Friday, we've got a brand new episode talking about the infamous Tommy Wiseau classic, The Room. So you'll get to see that this Friday. But for now, um, this is our third episode of The Who Review. We're talking about Once Upon Time, a mind-bending episode. I've watched it twice now, and I still can't really get my head around it, but I will try to break down my thoughts and theories as much as possible. So, where do we start with this? So the, the opening, um, actually, we'll just start with the whole um, post-title sequence bit uh, with the time storm. Um, Jodie sort of jumping into like a time storm, setting that off, you know, the sort of slowed down time effect was really cool. I really liked that. Um, very reminiscent of Heaven Sent. I would have loved it if Jodie sort of closed her eyes and she was in her TARDIS and it was a bit like Heaven Sent. Um, almost exactly. That would have been really cool. Nice little throwback. Um, but I can see why they didn't do that. There's just no, not really much point and it's a bit of a callback. But in the context of the actual scene itself, wouldn't have made a huge amount of sense. It would have made sense to have her watching the scene from her perspective with the backgrounds all blurry, seeing like Swarm and Azor counting down in slow motion with them sort of blurred out in the background was really interesting and a quite a nice little effect that they had there, so that was quite cool. Um, as a story point, it works quite well, but I will say with these sort of little cliffhangers, they are getting resolved very quickly. Um, it's not a huge criticism, but um, week one, the universe was ending, and the flux, and it was about to hit the TARDIS, and it was about to wipe them out for good, and then they just wake up in Crimea. And that hasn't really been explained yet, um, as to why they were in Crimea, why they went there, why they got teleported to that place. Like, why were they put or displaced there, when the Flux is supposed to destroy everything? Is it, it was never really explained. It's not, it's a bit of a criticism, but it's not, like, it's just something that kind of got to me, because it was a very quick resolution to a very good cliffhanger. And it was the same this week. Um, you know, Swarm about to snap his fingers, and then this week it's like, oh, she just thought really quickly and then moved in the way. It's fine. I liked it, and I've liked both resolutions to the cliffhangers, but they're not as sort of in-depth or as continuous as one would imagine. If you played this all in one, it would be a very weird thing to happen. It works week by week, but in um, if you're going to binge the whole thing of Flux by the end, these cliffhangers may not have as much punch as... Um, they did when we're first watching them, for example. Um, that being said, I like the idea of the time storm. It's a nice, interesting concept, and I like when Doctor Who does nice, new, unique, interesting concepts. It's not like a totally unique thing. It's been done in sci-fi before, where people go in their own time streams and like live through their life and see parts of their history. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I like the idea. I think, in a way, it was utilised well. In a way, it wasn't utilised well. But we're going to break down all the different stories to do with that. Before we do, though, we're going to go. Ju- uh, we're going to jump back. Before we do that, however, we're going to jump back to um, 
before the title sequence where we met Belle, a brand new character who was on the run from the Daleks in the Dalek sector. Um, a survivor of the Flux, trying to survive, trying to find someone who she loves, who we later find out is Vinda. Um, her story, I'm going to just talk about her story overall, I may as well get that out of the way and talk about that. Um, I really like Belle as a character. I think they did a really good job with her. Um, I was interested, I was fascinated, I wasn't like totally lost or confused with what they were doing. And as far as side characters go, and this is a bit of a criticism of the Chibnall era, but in the Chibnall era, side characters aren't that developed. The main characters are barely developed. I don't feel like I know much about Graham and Ryan, despite seeing them for two series. I don't feel like I know as much about them. Um, Belle, great first impression. I, I genuinely felt, and I think a lot of people have made this connection as well, she felt like a Moffat character. A little bit like, you know, like River Song, or like um, Captain Jack, or some, you know, very just confident, independent, some great dialogue in there, some great little action scenes, a clear motivation and drive to do what she's doing. I feel like she's a real person, like a real understandable character. And to see her interact with the Daleks and the Cybermen, even name drop the Sontarans, it gets me excited to see where they're going to take her next week and what they're going to do with her. Um, I have my own theories as to who she actually ends up being, um, but we'll talk about that towards the end because it's kind of out there, so stay tuned for that, of course. Um, so that's an interesting story. We didn't get too much with Belle, but we got enough where I was quite satisfied. I love the line where she's talking to the Cybermen um, and is saying, like, love is the only mission, and that's a really nice, poignant, but appropriate note for her character to sort of dwell on. We, um, obviously talking about Belle, we're going to talk about Vinda. Vinda had his own story, a lot more development this week. Um, I always kind of criticise Vinda for not really getting much to do, or not really getting much development. Always kind of thinking that maybe there's a secret there, maybe there's something to develop and, and uh, reveal. And there definitely is, but I think I get a clear idea of who he's supposed to be with this backstory, uh, interestingly enough. I think his backstory on this planet with this mysterious society and like constitution with this grand serpent character it was all very out there sci-fi stuff really it's the kind of thing you see in star wars star trek it's not like unfamiliar for sci-fi fans and it's good it was it was really good it was effective using familiar concepts to flesh out a, a new character it helps especially within the time frame that they're giving us and how much else they wanted to do with this episode it was nice to have a familiar concept done well he was in the time storm and looping through his own history and he kept seeing Yaz because obviously he's, you know, she's the only person he's actually met before they jumped in. Um, so that's interesting. Um, I'm not too sure about um, kind of what else to say about that. I, I really liked that. It showed something about his morals as a person, um, which is obviously important as a character, to, like to develop a character. It's important to sort of talk about his morals and, you know, who he is as a person. Um, and the fact that he fought against what he was commanded, talking about, you know, he's there for a constitution, not for its leader. Uh, a very Star Warsy concept, actually. I'm pretty sure there was a similar note in Revenge of the Sith, which was between the Jedi and Palpatine, where it's like, our allegiance is to the Republic, not its uh, leader who has been in for far longer than, you know, elected or something like that. Very similar vibes from that scene. Um, and I quite liked it. It showed his morality as a person. He did the right thing. Although you could definitely tell he was dreading reliving it so it's interesting does he regret that decision or does he stand by it and just not want to go through that again um it's interesting i'm not sure but at least it explains why he's on the outpost and it's nice to have him have this connection with bell 
It was a really nice little idea, and I was quite chuffed with that. I, I like what they did with his story, connecting him to Bell, but also giving him a bit of a past and a history, and sort of showing off who he is in terms of morals, in terms of all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, big fan of that stuff. Then we've got Yaz and the Weeping Angel. Um, this was interesting. I like, this is an interesting thing, because I, I, I quite like what they're doing with Yaz at the moment, but I'm, I want, I'm like desperate for it to have payoff, and I'm worried that it won't. Yaz is being talked to like shit by the Doctor throughout most of this, and like, you can see it's upsetting her, like, it's not good. I hope they address this. I hope they give us what they really want. But then it's interesting because they had such a good relationship and companionship at the beginning of the series that in two episodes it's just broken down. Like, the Doctor and Yaz just, in this episode especially, just... She's being a bit of a dick, the Doctor here. And I hope, like, not that she gets comeuppance, but that it gets addressed. I want Yaz to stand up for herself. I want Yaz to be like, hey, you're being a dick. We're trying to help. Yaz has done nothing wrong, and like her and Dan are both being talked to like shit because the Doctor is stressed about her own timeline, which is fine, but it's 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 worrying me because when the audience is used to having um or seeing the world through the companion's eyes usually, which hasn't been too much the case with the Chibnall era, but we're used to seeing the story through the eyes of the companion. They're the sort of the everyday, you know, um you know, the everyday modern person that is from our world, you know seeing all this fantastical space stuff. When we're seeing stuff from the companion's perspective and the Doctor's treating the companion like shit, it's, we start to not like the Doctor as much. And that's not something that Jodie's Doctor needs. Um, we don't need to give her this thing where Jodie's being a dick. Um, because Yaz isn't doing much wrong. But yeah, it's a minor thing, but it was just something that I'm like, I hope it gets developed. I hope there's a reason for it and it's not just thrown in there because the Doctor's stressed and everyone has to deal with it. Um, because that would be quite annoying. But yeah, Yaz's backstory stuff, there wasn't much developed there at all. There wasn't any like extra stuff with her backstory there. They threw in a bit of her in the police stuff. They threw a bit in with her sister. Um, but yeah, the Weeping Angel stuff was really good. I loved seeing the um, the angel appear in the sort of mirror of the car. I loved seeing the angel appear from the video game. Uh, a nice little connection to the new Doctor Who video game, of course, that's just come out. Um, a nice little detail. But it was, it was fun because it was just kind of like... They managed to make it work, and it wasn't total dog shit. It was, like, actually decent, effective, like, horror stuff. And I love the Weeping Angels, and I want to see more of them, and this was done well. This isn't a Weeping Angel episode, but it's probably the best I've seen the Weeping Angels done, maybe, like, as a standalone thing. Like, not as the main villain of their own episode since that. So, obviously, since, like... Angels Hit Manhattan, maybe like what, Time of the Doctor, or like Revolution of the Daleks, or like whenever they've just randomly sort of shown it, like Hellbent. So this is kind of, for me, it's like, this is actually the best they've been done because they're actually part of the story. They're not just thrown in there for a cheap fucking gag. I was, I'm sorry for the F-bomb there, but you can see I'm quite passionate about this. Um, I think like, I'm glad they were thrown in there properly. Um, you know, the image of the angel becomes itself an angel. I really like that concept being utilised again here with the video game coming out of the screen and also the phone at the end of the episode. That was a fantastic scene in the TARDIS. I was on the edge of my seat. I absolutely loved it. The inclusion of using the weeping angel, taking the TARDIS, reiterating that line from Blink, the angels have the phone box. I thought that was really good. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I'm expecting, obviously, with my past experience with Flux 4, that to be spun on its head and kind of just explained away in like a sentence so the rest of the story can get on but it does need me very excited for next week um 
Obviously, we've got Dan and Di as well. We get a little bit of their backstory. We hear about Dan and the fact that he was going to get married to someone and a few days before they just ran away um, and decided they didn't want to do it, which is obviously a bit of a blow. We also know that Dan's obviously like, um, he's not, you know, eating. He's not got food in. He's, he can't, he hasn't got much money to his name. Um, and he's still homeless at this point. So... I don't know. It's it's interesting with this all this sort of stuff with Dan. It's like I really hope something good happens for him because again, with the Chibnall era coming to a close, we know it's coming to a close. There's only six episodes left of Jodie's era. We're probably not going to see Dan and Yaz in Russell's era. It's probably going to be a little bit of a soft reboot, um, a continuation, obviously, but it won't probably bridge on to this at all. So I'm hoping that there's a little bit done with that because I feel really bad for Dan. He's a great character and he's funny. Um, He's a nice guy. He's just an all-round good character. Like, I, I, I feel for the guy. I'd actually prefer, at the moment, and this sounds bad, I know, because he's only been in three episodes, but I actually prefer Dan as a companion to both Graham and Ryan already. I know there was, like, a sort of fan thing there, but this, for me, this dynamic works a lot better, and the kind of person that Dan is is the kind of companion that I wanted to see in Series 11 when they had a full-time kind of older male companion. I would have liked to have seen this. He's got a good sense of humour, and he's a good guy. And Graham was obviously brilliant. I love Bradley Walsh's Graham. But this is something a little bit different for me, and this feels, I don't know, a little bit more natural. Again, like a real person, which shouldn't be, like, a huge accomplishment, because, you know, 10, 20 years ago, Doctor Who could create lots of very realistic characters. Whereas now, I feel like I'm not getting it as much. I quite like Dan because he does feel more realistic. Um, I love his relationship with Di. I think that's really good. And I love the twist that Di was in one of the passengers. Um, really compelling stuff there. And really kind of scary stuff um, as a concept. It's it's engaging and it works really well. And I'm, I'm, I'm delighted with the way they went with that. Again, really developing Dan in the right way. But not, not, like, not sidelining him, not underplaying him but kind of doing just the right amount of character development, so hopefully it goes somewhere. But I think I'm saying that about a lot of things, because it is just one continuous story. I'm left with every episode being like, oh my god, I'm excited for more. But also, but also, I'm worried that it, not everything is going to pay off and there's going to be something that sticks out. Um, for example, um, the Williamson Tunnels, the, uh, the, the guy, the, the old guy who's running around, he's running around with a gun today. I say this every episode, this guy just annoys the shit out of me, because he's not being, like, there's nothing really there at the moment. Obviously, that's going to be really important, probably towards the finale at this rate. But I'm like, I just want to know more about the guy. I want to know what's happening there. I know they're slowly feeding us it, and it is like a patience thing. But I feel no connection with his character other than that. When he shows up, the whole story just takes a pause, so he can, like, sort of dump you a few bits of information to hint at what's to come, and then disappear again. It's fine, but, like... He's interacted with Yaz and Dan now, and there's just this random guy, and that's that. You know, it works, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, I, overall with Dan and Di and all that sort of thing, I think that was really well done this episode, and I'm excited to see where it's going to go next. And the final big story arc that we've not even touched upon yet is the division and the Doctor's past. So the Doctor gets put into her own time stream, but it's not a place that she recognises. She's with Yaz, Dan, and Vinda. Um, on this sort of mission as part of the division to um, save the hostages that have been captured by Swarm and Azor, the Ravagers. There's a lot going on there. Jodie obviously doesn't recognise it, we don't recognise it, so we're seeing it through Jodie's eyes in this point, or sorry, 13's eyes in this point, and that's good. I like that. It's different. Um, 
the second the division were introduced, I was convinced that this was supposed to be Joe Martin's doctor. Um and I really I really liked that. There's obviously like we know that when that was revealed, I mean that that was a fantastic scene. I mean how how exciting really was that? I mean that was so, so good. Like the way it sort of plays on it, the way sort of she walks in, she says turns and looks in the mirror and we see Joe Martin for the first time since the Timeless Children. Um and that's just exciting. That is really, really exciting. And I am delighted to see her back. And Joe Martin's been very wink, wink, nudge, nudge about the whole thing since. So it leads me to assume that not only was that a one episode thing and like a nice little way to tie it back to Joe Martin, but she's going to be a main character at the end of the series. I'm convinced that we're going to see her in at least episode six, maybe even episode five. Who knows? Maybe we'll get a cameo next week as well. I really don't know at this rate, but I'm excited. I'm excited to see where that's going to go. Because Joe Martin is absolutely fantastic. I would have loved to have seen more of her in this episode. I think there's a common complaint here of the decision to um, have Jodie um, do the entire scene with um, Swarm and Azor. Occasionally cutting in, like glitching in footage of Joe Martin. I would have preferred Joe Martin just to do the whole thing. I would have preferred Joe Martin just to actually be there and be her character. And what from the mirror scene take over unless obviously there's a there's a bit where Jodie steps in and goes oh what's going on then obviously have Jodie but I think the whole scene should have been Joe Martin with Jodie occasionally glitching in I think that would have been a slightly better decision on their part maybe it's something to do with Covid because I feel like Joe Martin was likely green screened into a lot of this bar oh no but she wasn't was she because they said on set they were in the actual mirror so she was on set I don't know. It's an interesting one. I was I was a bit disappointed because I would have liked that to be the other way around, and I think a lot of people are the same. It's not a huge criticism. I just think it's we've got Jodie's perspective. When Jodie's just delivering the lines that were said by Joe Martin's doctor, exactly word for word. When that's revealed, just do let Joe Martin do it, and maybe intercut Jodie a couple of times. But like flip the side, so it's not just Jodie with Joe Martin occasionally appearing. It's Joe Martin with Jodie occasionally appearing. Um, that would have been. For me, slightly better, just so we can get a, like a real idea of what this story looked like without having to do photoshops and stuff. Um, same can be said about the companions and stuff as well. Again, probably COVID reasons and casting and all that sort of thing. But obviously we knew that Dan was Carvanista. We don't know who Yaz and Vinda were supposed to be. My personal little theory headcanon there is that they are Gat and Lee from The Fugitive of the Jadoon. It does make sense. Um, Vinda is holding a division pistol. Um, the same division pistol that is owned by Lee presumably. I mean, obviously, there's probably loads of these guns, but in Fugitive of the Jadoon, when Gat confronts Lee, um, Lee goes to grab a gun out of his drawer, but um, Gat's already got it, and actually kills him with that same gun, and it's the same gun that uh, Vinder's holding in this, which makes me assume that Vinder is supposed to be portraying Lee. It makes sense. Lee was described as a faithful companion to Joe Martin's doctor, and that this is supposed to be their final mission um, as part of the division before Joe Martin is uh, Jomon's doctor is allowed to leave the division. Um, this is a, like sort of swan song kind of thing. However, like the way it's being um, pushed, interestingly, is that maybe they, that didn't go to plan. They, I, I'm, I'm my my little theory here is because obviously we know Joe Martin's a fugitive. She runs away from the division before her time um, in Fugitive of the Dune. I think that 
this is the sort of supposed to be her last mission. She's been desperate to get out for ages. It's her last chance. She's going to get out. She's going to do it. Maybe something to do with the, all the hostages being killed. There was hundreds and thousands of people stored in those passengers that were wiped out in a second by Swarman Azor. Maybe that mistake on the Doctor's part would result in her being kept at the Division opposed to being let go. And that'll be when she runs away. I'm not sure. But if by that point Lee is supposed to be a faithful companion to this Doctor and actually run away with them... Um, it makes a lot more sense um, for Vinda to be Lee in this scenario. Which only leaves Yaz. And Yaz, I would assume, again, played uh, Gat. Now, this is just totally up in the air. There's no evidence really to support this. Other than the fact that Gat does call Lee an old friend in Fugitive of the Jadoon. Which implies they were sort of mates. They did know each other. They had identical training. Um... And sort of they bounce off each other a little bit almost as if they are old friends and they did know each other. Like Gat is the one who's betrayed them almost or the other way around-ish. She's got confidence but it's sort of a thing where it's like they are old friends and you get that sort of sense in there. Same as the Doctor and Gat. Although Gat is described as the Doctor's boss um, in Fugitive of the Dune, Which doesn't seem to be the case here with this team structure. It seems like Joe Martin is very much on top of the team here. Um... Although, for argument's sake, we don't know any other named members of the Division, so I would argue that Yaz is still playing Gat. It gives a personal connection to that character, even if you're retconning the whole line about her being kind of her boss. Um, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's why um, Yaz is the one, um, or Yaz's character, I guess, or Amanda Gill's character in this scene, is the one who's constantly injecting the stuff to stop the temporal hazing. She's in control of that situation. She's allowed to jab her potential, we think, commander on the neck. Maybe this is someone with a higher rank who is taking a lesser role because the Doctor is the negotiator, perhaps, and has to do the actual work, while Gat is much more of a fighter. That could be the reason around it, although... I think it's intended to be Gat and Lee. That would make a lot more sense. I hope it gets confirmed either way. It would be nice to know. But if it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. It's not a huge, huge detail. Um, I was quite fond of what they did with these scenes. I think the set design was gorgeous. And I love the fact that we got Old Swarm there. Um, the Doctor directly re uh, references what actually happens to Swarm and Azor. Um, like removal of identity, which is what happened to Azor. She became like a human and put on Earth. Um, before she was freed and obviously Swarm was locked up for generations in a maximum security thing before he rejuvenated himself um, with another division operative very different to the ones we see in this episode obviously so that's interesting um, I I like this I like the idea of it I like the fact that it tells us this but it is very much this episode an expositional episode we get told a lot of stuff and we are shown a lot of stuff as well but this is the only episode so far where it's not like filler, but it's like, it's not filler, but it's similar. It's where it's like, it's got the lore, it's got the story, it's got the canon stuff, but there's no actual depth in terms of story. I love the idea of the time storm, I don't think it was effectively utilised. It's supposed to be the, the Doctor's personal history, you know, Yaz and Dan are bouncing all over the place, why isn't the Doctor? Like, why is the Doctor playing out one set of events from beginning to end it's not like multiple would have been nice while she's getting to that point to slowly go back in time like she just pops up randomly in a matt smith story and then quickly zaps off to like a chris eccleson story and then like um some random eighth doctor mission maybe or something would have been really cool and then she ends up at this division thing 
I don't know, just some interesting visuals could have been played around with there, and it's a shame because the concept does feel a little bit wasted um, just to get a lot of story across. This episode really would have benefited from being 10 minutes longer, um, similar to episode 2. This was about 10 minutes shorter-ish, give or take a few minutes, but it still it could have had a bit more to it, and I would have liked to have seen some more stuff done with that concept and more stuff done with the Doctor. I love what they did, and it was great to see Joe Martin, it was great to have that sort of reveal, but I kind of think everyone had guessed that going in. The promo photos, the next time trailer, like, Geordie wouldn't let her companions carry guns. Like, Geordie's wearing a different coat, everyone was like, it's an evil 13, but I think most people guessed that, well, it's the Division guns, first of all, and, you know, they're probably in some sort of time loop thing, since Yaz is in a police outfit, all that sort of thing, it's like... Yeah, I don't really know, but just presuming, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I think everyone kind of guessed that going in. Maybe not that we see Joe Martin, but I think a few people were quite confident that this was supposed to be that version of the Doctor, or at least a Doctor in the Fugitive Era. Um, or Division Era, sorry, not the Fugitive Era, but you get the point. I like what they did with it, on the whole, but I think it's probably the weakest episode yet in this series. I stand by that only because it doesn't work too well as an individual episode. The Halloween Apocalypse is a fantastic watch, probably my favourite episode of this series yet. It doesn't show us too much, but it introduces a lot of things in a very interesting and unique kind of way. Um, it gets the point across, it does what it needs to do. Sontaran, uh, the War of the Sontarans, I almost said the Sontaran experiment there. The War of the Sontarans was really good as well, had a lot more room to breathe, told a proper good Sontaran story, with a few little flaws here and there, but it still expanded the story, it still continued it in an efficient way, and it sets up this week really well. This week... Other than the Weeping Angel stuff doesn't really do much for next week, or the continuation of it. It's like, it was kind of filler, in a way. Is Swarm's intentions with the, the, the Flux... Okay, the Flux is kicking off, they're going to disrupt time for a few minutes or whatever, and then come back. This episode was for the audience to learn more about the Doctor's past, and that's fine, but it basically felt like a slightly different version of the Timeless Children, almost, but with a Weeping Angel thrown in there, and with a few other cool details thrown in there. I like it. I'm not totally against the idea of it. However, it's not also not, like, the best episode of this series, and it's probably the weakest for me. I still enjoyed it. I still, I still got a lot out of it, um, and what it tried to do. Very adventurous, very out there. However, I am more excited for next week with the Weeping Angels, and I'm more excited to see where episode 4 and 5 are going to go with stuff like Swarm, The Division, Joe Martin's Doctor, all that sort of thing. It's very interesting ideas that are being introduced. And of course we had this brilliant scene as well with this random woman that the Doctor meets in this time stream thing. We sort of get told, we sort of assume that it's part of the Doctor's timeline, but I don't think it is. She doesn't glitch out, she doesn't change, nothing like that. It's very much like the more he said, no, we're not getting any more. And then suddenly Jodie wakes up in this sort of weird vision in this strange little room with this woman um, who we've not been introduced to before, who is talking very confidently as if she knows what's going on. The impression that I give from this is that in the, in the most Marvel way possible, I think this is some sort of watcher type being. I don't, I keep talking about multiverse every week. But it's interesting the use of words here and the way she's saying this universe is gone. It's it's dead. It's broken. That's it. You know, you can't stop this. Obviously, Geordie might try and stop it. However, 
it's the way she's talking about it, the way it's like this universe, you know, it's almost as if she's aware of other universes. She's alone up there. Is she potentially a future incarnation of the Doctor? Is she potentially a future incarnation of another character? People are saying the Rani, people are saying Omega, Tecteon. Um, there's a lot of interesting ideas going around there. I have no idea myself, I'm not going to call it. Maybe Tecteon, that's probably a decent one, but I don't know much about that character other than what we were told in The Timeless Children. She hasn't had any lines of dialogue yet, so it's quite difficult to know what she's like as a person and whether that fits the bill. But I do like an ethereal being. I like some random-ass, like, old man, old woman, just sort of lingering out who knows exactly what's going on but isn't telling um, and is sort of just totally in control. I really like those sorts of characters, so I am not complaining in the slightest. So now, yeah, again, I think these episodes are getting shorter with this podcast, but we're going to jump over to Twitter to see what people think um, based off, you know, whatever. Um, we've had a few things sort of brought in. Let's talk about what people on Twitter are saying. Theories, thoughts, all that sort of thing, um, like we always tend to do. But yeah, these episodes are getting a lot shorter, aren't they? I've realised that because I think there's not as much to say. This episode crams a lot in it, but there isn't actually too much I feel like I need to say about it. I feel like there's a lot there. There's a lot to talk about. There's some great visuals, but I think I've covered basically everything. You know, I like what a lot of it does. Um, so I'll talk through some Twitter stuff, and then maybe I'll talk about my own theories alongside this. Um, Skyminer2243 says, Pretty obvious one, but I think the other Division agents in Ruth's Doctor's timeline were Gat and Lee. Totally agree, as I mentioned before. Um, at DW underscore gay. <laughs> great name, by the way. Um, the old woman is techty and cursed with the knowledge all the civilizations she created ended up dead or resenting her, willing to let her rule, uh, rules of non-intervention that she imposed on Time Lord society in the first place ultimately stop her from trying to save the universe. That's interesting. A very, very in-depth thought there. There's clearly some decent stuff behind that. And I'm, I'm a fan of that. I quite like what, they, what they're what they suggesting there. Good idea, Luke. I like that. That's very good. At Puxadino... Tardis, sorry for butchering that name. Um, the Doctor's team is Carvanista Gat and Lee. Yep. Um, the Flux Vinda sees is not the same Flux 13th Dan and Yaz sees. The Flux has caused the Flux caused a clash between realities and universes. That's an interesting theory. Um, and I would potentially agree, but that being said, the Doctor does end up taking Vinda back to his home planet at the end. And they might do stuff with other universes, you know what I'm like with the whole multiverse theories this series, but I feel like maybe that won't happen, and maybe they'll sort of do multiverse stuff and, and play around with that later on in the series, but I think that Vinda, um, Bell, the Doctor, 13 and Yaz are in the same universe, and that that flux is the same one. Um, they've also said the old lady is a version of Tecteon, a lot of people are saying that. And then Vinda and Belle are the timeless child parents. Now, this is something I put on Twitter um, a few days ago because I thought about it and I was like, here's an interesting idea. Um, and I'll talk about it here. So this is a theory that if comes true, will absolutely just divide fans all over. Because then you're confirming the heritage of the Doctor. Um, who are the Doctor's parents? The timeless child we know is the Doctor. The earliest version of the timeless child we know is a child in some strange rags from like an alien planet, standing below this huge rip in space and time, this boundary, which sort of just drops you somewhere in this sort of monument. Tectium finds the child and takes her to Gallifrey. You know the rest. This child is the first recorded person to have had 
the effects of regeneration um, that, like, Tectoon obviously takes to her advantage. Um, so there's an interesting idea there, but that's the earliest idea we know. So my suggestion here was that Vinda and Belle are introducing this series. Again, let's emphasize that Chibnall doesn't have many episodes left. Vinda and Belle are like, brought up in this series. We've got two characters who we don't know much about. We're sort of we're told that they're supposed to be important. We know they're supposed to be important. We know that the kind of people they're supposed to be are like they're building these characters up. But like you're saying, there's not too much development. What we are getting told is about them two and what their story is. But once they've found each other, what's the story there? Okay, they've introduced the fact that Belle is pregnant. She's got a child on the way. That concept there is instantly like, okay, so not only are they trying to find each other so they can be together and whatever, for whatever happens, they've also got a kid on the way. An interesting detail that wasn't vital to the rest of their story. Obviously him being a sort of father-in-waiting does add for that desperation to be back together. Of course it does. But the interesting idea of adding a pregnancy in there when we've already got a mystery about a child is an interesting one. Also bear in mind that the universe is falling apart. Time is all over the place. Space is also all over the place. I'd say the baby's birthed and then thrown throughout time all the way back to right outside that boundary. The exposure to the time vortex and all that sort of thing gives this child this totally unforeseen like genetic binding thing called regeneration i think it's my theory right and i well it's not my theory a lot of people have talked about this i'm not i probably won't be the first to say it but i put it on twitter a while back and i i see this happening i genuinely see this i could be totally wrong and part of me hopes i am because it's a very very big thing to confirm however i don't hate it i don't dislike the idea that these are the doctor's parents because you're spending an episode here where you're introducing Belle as this person who is happy-go-lucky, kind of out there, sort of space adventurer kind of person. She's got a really positive outlook on life. Um, she does use guns, which is interesting, but obviously, you know, <laughs> can't be exactly the same. Um, but as, you know, if she was the Doctor's mother, we've got scenes where she's flying this ship and she smacks it and then gets sent flying back and is left on the floor laughing. That's a very Doctory personality trait. Um, there's a lot of stuff there about love prevailing, love being the only mission, not it being about fighting or winning or anything like that. That's a very Doctory thing to say as well. Vinda is given a whole episode here, which basically shows... The reason he is where he is with this like, sort of outpost station is because of his morality. About his morality, we get a whole episode about it. Like, he is shown to be someone who wants to do what's right for the greater good. He even puts himself abandoned in this little outpost station where he can't even speak to the woman he loves because, all because of his morality and doing the right thing. Again, a very doctory trait. I think if you were going to give people the title of the Doctor's parents, officially, in canon, these are two very worthy characters of that title. I don't know if I particularly want that to happen because I think it's telling us a little bit too much about the Doctor's past and history, but I wouldn't run it past Chibnall to do it. I think it would be ballsy, and I think if done correctly, could be very good. I know people are going to get upset with that, but you don't have to accept this is your sort of headcanon. It's absolutely fine. For me, I like it enough where I would accept it. Um... It's definitely going to make me want to make another complete history video, though, bloody hell. Um, it's a big, big story point. And, again, someone who 
is against this sort of like constitutional idea of this supreme leader who fights against that, does the right thing, partnered with someone who's got a baby on the way, quite fancy with technology, a bit of an adventurer, um, has fought the Daleks, the Cybermen, all these sorts of things. It's it's great that like the idea that these characters are brought up in in the future, in like Jodie's and like Mandips and and, and oh, not Jodie and Mandip, the, the characters Yaz and Dan, their sort of time zone. It's there. It's the twenty first century that this is all happening. Yet if the child, because of the flux, gets sent back in time, outside of that boundary, it kickstarts the whole thing. The Doctor doesn't even realise that she's interfering with her her own father, playing into this history thing with the Doctor where she has to sort of be careful about who she talks to, interacting with, and she doesn't even realise it. There's so many stories where the companions get to meet their own parents, you know, who have died or whatever, Father's Day for example, but the Doctor's very controlling about it. It'd be amazing if the Doctor didn't even know this whole time that she's been interacting with her own father. I think that's fascinating, and I think they could do it, and I'm not sure if I want them to do it, but I think it's an interesting one. Anyway, more theories from Twitter. We've got at the bearded Jake here. He says the old woman referred to the universe as uh, this universe, yeah, uh, and said the Doctor was somehow connected to the flux, which was created. I think the Doctor comes from another universe, and the powerful beings there want her back. The flux is how they're flushing her out. Whatever race the Doctor originally belongs to feels they've had too big an effect on this universe, unintentionally creating the Time Lords, and being and in turn being responsible for the time war they're so they're trying to set things right by cleansing the universe of that interference the master destroyed the time lords and transformed them into something else in mockery of the doctor and how she's shaped the universe the doctor is a god who doesn't know she's a god while the master just wants godhood meanwhile whoever created the flux are the real gods that's a fascinating theory that's the top marks there um I don't know how much of that I agree with. I'm not sure if the Doctor comes from another universe, but it's definitely an interesting idea. Again, the boundary, we don't know where that leads to. We know that, despite what's said about Moffat's era in terms of Hellbent and whatever's established there, in Geordie's era, it is established that Gallifrey is still in the bubble universe. And they are able to transfer through the boundary into this bubble universe, which implies that the boundary does break the laws of time and space and can be accessed and just sort of thrown through to a different universe, potentially. So, maybe, you know, maybe this is something where it is from a different universe, um, and the boundary links to a totally different place entirely. Um, we don't know yet if Swarm and Azor are behind the Flux. I feel like they might be, but it's not established yet. We have Swarm saying, oh, the battle of space and time, which I think is interesting. But I'm not sure, it's not been established directly whether they're responsible for the flux, but they are responsible for obviously the breaking of time, that is on them. But what they're not responsible for is the flux, 100% quite yet. Yet they seem to know what's happening, and they seem to have a plan as if they are in control of it. So, there's a lot of interesting ideas there, but we'll see. I, lo I love this theory though, that's brilliant. We've got Lego One Up Mushroom who says, uh, probably my least favourite episode so far, felt far confusing and dis uh, disorganised. Um, did like that they brought back the Ruth Doctor, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's revealed that Vinder and Bell's child is the Timeless Child. Yeah, totally agree there. It's probably the weakest episode of the series, but it does still work and has a lot going for it, I think. Uh, Doctor Master said, I think the Doctor will have, um, a moment at the end of the series where either she gets all her memories back from pre-Hartnell, or she finally learns to let it go. Either way, I feel like some big shit's gonna happen. I totally agree. Um... 
alternate 13th has said, I have no theory due to this episode, um, but I'm very proud that I've correctly predicted that 13 and Friends overlaid on Ruth and Division versus Swarm on time, element days before the episode. Good for you, man. Um, Crispy Stuff 675 has said, uh, I find the line, the u this universe is dying to be interesting. Has another timeline slash universe collided with the Doctors? A universe where the timeless child exists and a different version of the Doctor began until the universes slash timelines collided. I know Chibnall said that the fugitive stuff is not a parallel universe Doctor, but I mean he can be quite jammy with his wording. For instance, he said that the Daleks weren't in series 11, and technically they weren't, but they were in the New Year's special, so who knows. Very true, Chibnall can be quite jammy with his words. I don't know specifically whether that's something he will um, jump into and sort of, like, play with, but we will see. And finally, from Sherlock's 242, um, I think the scenes set in the time stream were set in an alternate universe. Uh, I think that's why Swarm looks so different and why the Doctor was wearing a different jacket. I, I don't I don't agree with that. I think the reason Swarm looks different is because it's before his rejuvenational process. He looks exactly like he did in episode one before he sort of regenerated, if you will. And the, obviously the Doctor wearing a different jacket is just a signifier that that is not the 13th Doctor, that is Joel Martin's Doctor. But we're seeing it through the eyes of Jodie Whittaker. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's basically it for this episode. I don't think there's much else I want to really say about it. I think... Um, it was a solid job and I'm very excited for next week. I think I've talked about all the theories, all my thoughts on this and yeah. So if you are enjoying these, please be sure to share it around and check out our other episodes currently on there. Now we've got a Who review for episodes one and two of Flux, so you can go and check that out. Um, yeah, in the meantime though, we've obviously got reviews every week on YouTube. Uh, we are doing... Um, film reviews every Friday, again, The Room this Friday, Ghostbusters last Friday, go and check both of those out when um, they're out, so yeah, that's great, um, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you all on Friday with The Room, see you all later, have a lovely day, bye-bye.